Yeah, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you, uh, you walk with us all the way, Lord. And we do, we do keep our eyes and our, our vision and our focus on the future because we know um, you have great things in store for us. In fact, you have eternity with you in store for us. And that's where our focus is. It's not in the moment, but as we look back, we see the great things you've done and the way that you've answered prayer and you've moved in our hearts and our lives and our church. And Lord, I know everybody here can look back on their own year and, and, and see ways that, that God has been at work, God. And so we praise you. We praise you for that. Lord, we lift up this coming year to you and all the things that are going to happen, the joys and the trials and babies being born and lives being changed and um, God, we just know that you have good in store when we stood here a year ago <clears throat> we didn't know what you would do in 2015 but we thank you for what you did and we trust you're going to do great things in 2016 Lord help us this morning as we, we look into your word in Galatians <clears throat> as we continue on with our series um, I pray that you'd really speak into our hearts this morning in Jesus name Amen all right, so we're in the series on Galatians. We've been off of it for a few weeks here as we went through the Christmas season. And so we're going to pick it right back up in Galatians chapter 4 at the end. Just a, sort of the one sentence overview of the series is that we're just trying to, to grab hold of the gospel, trying to hug the gospel and really see how it applies to our lives wherever we're at. So we'll start here um, in Galatians chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can uh, read along or on your electronic device or on the screen we have it here for you. I'll go ahead and read it. This is the Apostle Paul talking and he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written. Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child... Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And so that's our passage, and today we're going to look at a gospel way to live. And Paul sort of uses an illustration from the Old Testament here um, to talk about how God has made a promise 
for our lives and how we can walk in that promise. So first I just wanted to give a brief overview here, right? He's talking about Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. And for those of you maybe who've forgotten that story or just not, uh, not familiar with it, which is totally fine. Um, basically, you got Abraham and he's out there and, and God, God says, hey, I'm going to make you a chosen nation. And so he calls him away from his homeland into this new land. And as part of that, he says, look... You're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham's like, oh, that's great. That's a really exciting thing, especially in that culture. Making yourself go on, having children and so forth is a big deal. Um, there's only one problem. Is that his wife, Sarah, is unable to have children. And so we see in Genesis chapter 16, and it goes on chapter 18 and chapter 21, um, Abraham and Sarah, they begin to get older and older and older. And finally they're going, we don't have a son. We don't have any children. How is God going to fulfill this promise? And so they decide to take matters into their own hands. And so Sarah says, I have my, my servant Hagar here. Abraham, why don't you take her? And the two of you can have a baby and that can be your son. And that can be how God can fulfill his promise. Now, that seems a little strange to us, culturally. At that time, that was almost sort of a normal thing. It happened quite a bit. Um, and it was sort of their effort of, of to try to fulfill God's promise. But that's not what God had promised. Um, and so this in this situation, it, it ended up bearing bad fruit, right? It was really bad for Abraham. Abraham really decided to choose his own ability over having faith in God. Uh, it was bad for Sarah. See, her self-worth was caught up in having children. And she took sort of that into her own hands. And she ended up very jealous of Hagar and her son Ishmael. It was bad for Hagar, who was really kind of an innocent victim. She became really uh, the target of uh, jealousy and anger. And she ended up really being an outcast, getting sent out of the family out into the desert to die. And fortunately God rescued her there. Um, this was a bad situation for Abraham's family. As a family unit. There was lots of sadness and discord and jealousy. And a lot of things going on there in their family. And then it ultimately ended up being bad for the world. Because as we see. Isaac became the father of the Jewish nation. And Israel, Ishmael became the father of the Arab nation, and we still see conflict, don't we, between Jews and Arabs to this very day, thousands of years later. Now, eventually, um, God, as he does, fulfilled his promise, and Sarah did conceive and have a son, and that was, that was Isaac, and so God comes through in the end. Now, how does that apply back to what Paul's talking about? Paul is really making an illustration. He's using an allegory. He's not having an, having an interpretation on this story. So he's not talking about morality of those relationships. There's a point there where he says in the passage in verse 24, these things may be taken figuratively. So we're not talking about the morality here of this. He's talking about how can we illustrate in God's economy the difference between grace and works, or living under grace and living under law. And so that's what we're going to try to focus on today here. And so the first question we better ask is, what does Paul mean when he says under law? Right there in verse 21, he says, you who want to be under the law. Well, what is he talking about? What does it mean to be under the law? Well, let's ask a question. We've been asking this question just to sort of review for everybody. Do we need to obey the law to have a right relationship with God? Anyone? 
one? No? No. Right, well, we go back to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, but when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So Christ fulfilled the law's requirements on our behalf. So we don't have to fulfill the law. Christ fulfilled the law. He stands in our place. He took the penalty that was due to us and and lived according to the law. And so we see from this verse, we who have received him as our Lord and Savior, we get to be adopted into his family, into God's family. We get to be seen as a son and not just some other son or a stepson. We get to be seen the same as God sees Jesus. Which is amazing. We talked about that before, so that's kind of review. And so we recognize that we don't need to achieve a right relationship with God through our works. In fact, we are unable to achieve a right relationship with God through good works. And so that's where we're at. So we see that, no, Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. So... Being under the law means relying on works to have a right standing with God. So Paul, when he says, you who want to be under the law, he's saying, you who want to rely on your works to have a right standing with God. When we want to rely on works, we want to exert our own effort to be right with God. Now this happens in two ways. One is for salvation, for eternity. We think, okay, I'm going to die and stand before God and be in heaven or not, well, if I have enough good works sort of built up, I'm going to be able to spend eternity with God. We know that's not the case, right? Some of you, we think about, we went through the outreach class here this fall, you think about asking diagnostic questions. That's one of those questions we ask is, if you had to stand, you have to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you answer? common answer for many people is, oh, I've done a lot of good things, I've been a good person, or so forth. And we see very clearly from the Bible that that is not how we get to have eternity in heaven. Now, in addition to salvation, we also have the opportunity to have relationship with God. And so sometimes we sort of forget about that, that we don't need to do good works to have a right relationship with God. And that's what we've seen in some of these chapters as we've gone through Galatians, is that God loves us exactly the same sort of the maximum level, regardless of what we do. We think that if we don't do good works, he will love us less, and that's just simply not the case. Now, don't be confused. There's still a place for us to be obedient to God. There's a place in this economy for us to have obedience to God, but we're going to talk about that more next week when we get into chapter 5. So Paul really ties... Um, this illustration of, the, of uh, Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar and Sarah, he ties that together right here into this idea of being under the law. He says, now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of promise. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So slavery, what he's talking about here, is a slavery into thinking we need to do things to be right with God, either for eternity or for our relationship with him now, versus the freedom, which is trusting in his promise. Remember, Abraham and Sarah, they took things into their own hands, where God had made this promise and said, you don't have to take things into your own hands. And so there's this parallel. 
It goes on here. All right, so how do we... How do we see the law, the law, in quotation marks there, how do we see that play out? How do we see it play out in ourselves? How do we see that play out in other people? Well, it happens in a couple ways. <clears throat> First is in our hearts, right? And we think, what is our heart? What does that mean? It's kind of, uh, what do we believe? What do I really believe in my heart? What am I relying on from a belief standpoint, from a framework? Um, that's going to guide us in all of the things in all of our life, including in our actions. So actions are essentially what we quote-unquote obey, right? What do we choose to do? And so the law can play itself out in our heart and in our actions. And it can play out in sort of different ways there. But you add those two together and it really amounts to how you live. Heart plus actions equals how I live. And so... We really discover when you have the heart and you have the actions, and they can kind of go different ways, you really end up with four ways to live. Now, those of you who like charts, kind of have a little chart here, so get excited. Right? Okay, so we have the heart, and under the heart, you can either say, ah, in my heart I'm either relying on the law, I'm relying on doing good works, or I'm not really relying on good works to do anything. And then on the other hand, you have your actions, and you can be, okay, I'm going to really obey the law, I'm going to do good works, or I'm not really going to do good works, right? And so you can see we're going to get sort of four quadrants here, and so we'll sort of walk through those. The first one is if you are a law-obeying, law-relying person. So that's somebody who says, ah, I gotta, I, not only do I believe I have to do good things, I'm really trying to do good things. For my standing with God, my right standing with God. And so these folks are typically going to be very smug. They're going to be very proud of their religiosity. Such a big word, religiosity. That's kind of where they're at, right? And this could be any religion or any value system. It could be um, Judaism. It could be Islam. It could be Buddhism. It could be Hinduism. It could be Christianity, could be some other religion that you want to think of, right? And so people who say, I've got this set of values that's external to me, this law, I'm, tr I'm trying to obey it and I'm relying on it for my standing with God. And these folks typically are going to think that they're secure because of their good works. But often deep down they're really insecure because who can really know if you've been good enough, right? Who can really know? I have a friend... Um, who, I, when I think of this, he falls right into this. Um, he's not a Christian, he's part of a, a different religion, but he, he likes to give gifts. Or maybe that's not even the right way to say it, that he likes to give gifts. He gives gifts, but it's like he's keeping a tally. And so he'll give you a gift, and then he's waiting to see if you give him a gift. And if you give him a gift, he'll give you another gift. But if you don't give him a gift, he won't give you another gift. It's like he wants to keep the, like, me and Greg, right? And he keeps a tally. He wants to make sure he always has one more than I do. It's because there's no grace and there's no love. It's this, i got to make sure I'm doing enough good works. I'm making sure I'm giving enough, right? It's that kind of idea of he has this law and he's relying on it. Now, these folks are often very sensitive to criticism, Criticism of their beliefs, criticism of their worldview. And oftentimes, though, if they pray, they're devastated when their prayers aren't answered because they go, oh, that means I'm not being good enough. I'm not doing a good enough job. And so we could call these people, just to, to give them sort of a, a 
tag, a hashtag? I should put a hashtag there. The religious zealot that we would call these people. So that's one way to live. Another way to live would be to be a law, law disobeying. So in your heart, or in your actions, you're not really obeying, but in your heart, you, you want to be obeying. Right? And so these are folks who have a religious conscience. They've probably grown up in, in some sort of worldview, religious worldview, but they're not living consistent with it, and they know they're not living consistent with it, but they think they ought to. And so the result is they have lots of self-guilt. I've heard this um, even a lot of times from people who go to church, people who have gone to this church, and they say, I feel so guilty when I don't go to church on Sunday. Well, there, there's nothing that's going to get us right standing with God for going to church, right? That's what we see in the gospel is the gospel is not dependent upon whether we do right or wrong. But if you feel guilty because you're not doing right or wrong, you, you maybe are falling into this trap, right? And so these folks are oftentimes subject to mood swings. You can get very angry because of guilt. And a lot of times they're afraid to even talk about religious things because they're so guilty. Because ah, if I talk about that, I've got to sort of realize I'm not living up to the standard I have set. And so we would call these people the self-deprecators. They uh, tend to sort of look down on themselves because they've set this high standard for themselves that they're not living up to. Right? So the third way you can live here is to be law-disobeying and not law-relying. So you're just like, yeah, none of, it's, none of it's true. A lot of times these are going to be intellectually secular people um, or non-religious people, so to speak. Um, but ultimately, morality is a vacuum. And so if you don't claim some other standard for morals, you really end up inventing your own. And so these folks really do create their own set of morals, and a lot of times they're like, ah, I'm meeting these set of morals that I've set up for myself. Right? Interestingly, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about these people. He talks about everybody, but he talks about these people specifically, and he says... Everybody has it in their conscience. They understand that there's a God. They understand that morals, God has set that conviction in every person. He's sort of hardwired it into us. So ultimately, these people kind of feel like, ah, I don't need that law. I don't need those works. I'm not relying on it, but they kind of actually are. Um, they're kind of earning their own righteousness, at least in their own minds. And they do this by sort of feeling or acting superior to other people. They go, ah, well... I've sort of set up my own standards and I'm living up to those standards and those people aren't. And so they sort of use that. And so we could call these people the self-superiors. They want to make themselves superior because they say, well, I've set up morality and I'm living up to that. Why can't you live up to my morality or your own morality, right? So the fourth way we can live is we can be gospel believers, which is where we obey the law, but we're not relying on that law for our standing before God. This is really the Christian position, and this is really what it means to understand the gospel. You get to live free of self-righteousness, and you get to be free of guilt, self-guilt. We obey God out of love. We obey him because we honor him. We obey him out of worship. We don't obey him to gain right standing with him. And again, we're going to talk about this more next week specifically. But we would call these the gospel believer, right? So here you've got these four things, these four ways to live. Which one are you living under? 
Interestingly, what we find is that we can be that fourth one, that gospel believer, and we can be right with Christ, but we can fall into these other three categories. It's very easy for us to find ourselves living in those ways, right? Common errors of the gospel believer, one of them would be we can know Christ, we can have a a right relationship with him, yet we start to rely on our goodness to feel secure or righteous, I found myself in that situation when I was a teenager and a young adult. I had placed my faith in Christ, but I thought that God was going to love me more or less based upon the things I was doing. And we see in the gospel that that's just simply not true. Another way we can err is that we can know Christ and yet we can beat ourselves up with guilt over our failures and sin. And yet if you recognize that if you've received Jesus your Lord and Savior and you've accepted that forgiveness then all of your sins are forgiven and you are forgiven and you don't need to feel guilty over your sin the third way is we can make an error here is we can know Christ and yet we can act and feel superior to others we sort of set ourselves up in this righteous mode where we go ah I feel better about myself in Christ because I'm better than those people and that's an error as well of being a gospel believer So, just to give you a little taste of what we're headed towards here, what does it look like to be a gospel believer? What does it look like to be out from under that law, under that works righteousness? What does that look like? Well, it means, go back to Abraham, talk about you can live in the slavery or you can live under the promise. And so it's really letting our actions and our heart live under that promise, not under that slavery. And so... When we want to be a gospel believer and we're going to live that out, we're not going to be obedient to God to earn his favor. Right? We can't earn his favor from doing that. We're obedient because he's shown us favor as a response. Out of love, out of worship, out of honor. We can be a gospel believer. It means not being fixated on differences. We see people who like to look at these overgeneralizations of like people groups, people things like, oh, Oh, that people are like that, and those people are like that. Well, when you're a gospel believer, you're not fixated on difference. You're concerned on needs. Concerned about people individually and where they're at. And you start, stop overgeneralizing them as a way of making yourself superior. You begin to have a love for individuals. Another way it was not having a forced sense of humility. This sort of false sense of humility, which... It's false because you're really trying to humble other people through your humility. You ever done that? I know I've done that before. Instead, you have a true humility. And that true humility is knowing just exactly how sinful and wretched you really are in God's eyes. And see how truly forgiven you are as well. Now, it also the way it looks like to be a gospel believer is that you're not seeing needs or justice, social justice as the goal of ministry. Right? It would be so easy, right? We're talking about gospel groups and we're talking about celebrate recovery and we're talking about financial peace and we're talking about you know, all these you know, parenting or we have a, the Cafe Bebe that meets, right? And we're trying, oh, we could just be like, oh, we're just here to meet needs. And that becomes the goal. But that's not the goal of what we're doing because Christ has called us into something higher where he says those things are important, but those things are a bridge, To help you people understand the good news of Jesus Christ. 
That's how we live as a gospel believer. We also live not with a focus on the moment. Remember we talked about the contrast between fireworks and a fire? Do you guys remember that illustration? The world just has everything for the moment. God wants us to live in light of eternity. And the world offers fireworks, this great blast of excitement and light. And yet then it's gone and it doesn't satisfy And what God offers us with the gospel, with the good news, and with eternity is a fire that burns and warms us and and provides heat and light and fills the need that we have. And so when we're a gospel believer, we don't focus on the moment. Instead, we focus on eternity. We look around us and we look at the world and we say, wow, every single one of these person is going to have, is an eternal being. And is either going to spend that in fellowship with God or separated from him in hell. And that begins to inform how we live as a gospel believer. And lastly, being a gospel believer means that we're not feeling superior. We're not feeling hostile. We're not setting up some kind of hierarchy in our minds of how we compare ourselves to others. But instead, we have a true love for others. We see others with equality. We see others with unity. We don't set things up as a contrast or a contest Now, it's interesting there in in verse 29, the Apostle Paul, he says that those under the law, those who are living in works righteousness, will always persecute those who live under grace. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think it's because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, threatens those who are religious more than it threatens those who are not religious. Those who have set up a works righteousness standard in their mind, the gospel is threatening to that because it says, your works aren't going to get you there. And there's a threat. And so I think we can ask ourselves that question, sort of do a self-litmus test. We know that we're living under grace if we're not hateful or jealous or judgmental towards others who are different from us. On the other hand, we know that we're living under law, that we're living under works righteousness if we're hostile towards those who are different from us. So that really is the summary of what we're talking about here at the end of chapter 4. Next week we're going to go on into chapter 5 and we're going to talk about freedom and what it really means to live in freedom. And it's going to go on and we're going to talk about the fruits of the Spirit in the coming weeks and say, ah, there's an obedience that flows out of following Jesus. It's going to be really exciting. I'm looking forward to it. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, for your truth. And Lord, I think about the gospel. I think about the good news, the fact that we are more sinful than we could imagine, and yet you love us more than we could ever hope. And that you've given us grace. You've sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross our sins, to come back to life, to stand in our place, to to pay the penalty for our sins if we would only receive you, if we would only place our faith in you, if we would repent, trust, we would confess your name. God, I thank you that um, all the other economies, spiritual economies and worldviews that are present in our world and our culture set up some form of works righteousness. That's how we know that the good news is different is that it is not works righteousness. It is a free gift. 
Thank you, God, for giving us a free gift of salvation and the free gift, the opportunity to have a right relationship with you where we can love you and be connected with you and walk with you and serve you and obey out of love, out of worship, not out of obligation or fear or guilt or self-righteousness. Thank you for providing that for us, God. God, thank you uh, again for giving us a whole new year where we can walk in this. Lord, as we, th- we think about having resolutions, New Year's resolutions, and ha- how we could walk those things out, whether we're thinking about diet or exercise or personal habits or other goals, Lord, it's so great to look back and see the goals that maybe we achieved this past year. Lord, I pray that each one of us would set in our heart a goal to understand your good news better this year, to walk deeper in your grace as we go through the months, and we go through the joys and the, the trials, the struggles. God, thank you for this family you've placed together here at Firehouse Church, Lord. Lord, we know you're doing good things. God, we attribute all of it to you, none of it to us. Um, God, we just want to serve you in it. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.